We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. And then uh, there was plagiarism. It turned out that Claudine Gay plagiarized quite a lot uh, throughout her career. And um, the chorus, uh, you know, first a bunch of people stepped into Defender and say, this was not plagiarism, just duplicative language. But then um, but that, that sort of, you know, uh, got laughed at. My favorite example that I always bag on is the, the um, Nobel Prize for uh, real business cycle theory. Uh, they basically say a recession happens when engineers discover fewer things this year or even forget some of what they knew somehow. And then um, this causes people to be pessimistic about the future of technology. And then a whole bunch of workers decide that, you know, they're going to take a vacation because of that. And that's unemployment. Well, that's bull. But, but it won a Nobel Prize in 2004. So you can get a Nobel Prize for bull. Uh, what's interesting is that in, in bio, you can get uh, experts to predict very accurately which papers will replicate and which papers will not. You immediately know like, oh, this paper's crap. This paper's good. And, and it's, it's pretty high accuracy. That's a bad sign because it means that if experts know which papers will replicate and they're still, you know, experts, th these are the same experts who publish those papers, who approve those for peer review, who approve those at journals, right? Who invite those authors of those papers to speak at conferences. So they know that they're promoting crap. There's a bad incentive there. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Well, let's uh, let's let's get into it. It's a crazy uh, crazy time right now. In uh, with all, everything that's happening in universities, uh, Bill Ackman is uh, waging a basically one man army um, against uh, against Harvard, MIT, um, Penn. Uh, Claudine Gay has been fired. Um, most recently, uh, a journalist came after you know, said that his you know his wife is plagiarizing, um, and now he's trying to uh, you know conduct an experiment, uh, investigation of of plagiarism and. You know, higher education more broadly using AI. So people are, you know, getting concerned or asking questions of, hey, what is, you know, sort of acceptable plagiar plagiarism, if any? Um, what one you sort of uh, edit my characterization or what, what do you, how do you, what do you see is, is happening right now? Well, so, you know, uh, Claudine Gay, who was the president of Harvard, got in front of Congress and gave some, uh, some bad testimony, although not as bad as the other two people who were on the stand. Slightly less bad testimony about um, about how people calling for the genocide of Jews hypothetically might or might not be uh, harassment according to the university's official policy. This made a lot of people mad. Um, the the woman who really gave the worst answer, she was just very smug and smirky, was the woman at Penn, and she stepped down shortly after that because she became sort of the face of bullshit. The uh, the MIT person somehow escaped uh, stepping down, even though they were sort of the second worst. And then the third worst, but still somewhat bad, was was Claudine Gay. And then some guys decided to go after Claudine Gay, um, including uh, um, an economist uh, guy, Chris Brené, um, oh, who, who has made his bones sort of going after mostly women economists in the econ profession 
uh, you know, saying their research sucked, but, but being very ineffectual there. Um, he had, he had never gotten much purchase. You know, he went after like Lisa cook for the fed and a bunch of other like women, you know, um, but, but no one ever really listened to him or paid attention to him. But then he got, um, a lot of attention when he teamed up with Chris Rufo, who is, uh, you know, much better at this. And Chris <laughs> Rufo is, uh, you know, he's kind of, um, he's funny because he, you know, he always does these, like, he's a conservative activist, right? He's fighting against, like, you know, um, affirmative action, stuff like that. Anyway, he uh, he always tells you his master plan. And he gives you this big spiel of, like, here's what I'm going to do, Mr. Bond. And then, like, and then it just drives the the libs up the wall. And, and you know, it's always, like, it's, a, you know, it's always something fairly mundane, just dressed up to sound like a supervillain. He's like, I'm going to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. And it's just like, I mean, you're just going to like highlight some evidence of plagiarism, which is what he did. <laughs> and then uh, there was plagiarism. It turned out that Claudine Gay plagiarized quite a lot uh, throughout her career. And um, the chorus, uh, you know, at first a bunch of people stepped in to defend her and say, this was not plagiarism, just duplicative language. But then, um, <laughs> but that, that sort of, you know, uh, got laughed at and then, as, as the more and more examples were discovered, people realized this is, she's just one of those people who always does this and then that she was going to have to go. And then she stepped down, but she, you know, she's still a Dean and a professor and making $900,000 a year. So I think she's all right. Um, but then a bunch of people got mad about it uh, because, you know, when, when you see, that's the thing that that's what Rufo's really doing. You know, it's, it's what Rufo's really doing is not, um, you know, with the whole, like, this is my master plan kind of thing. What he's really doing is saying, like, you know, forcing people to acknowledge that they did something in response to a conservative activist, right? Because instead of allowing them the fig leaf of saying, we did this because of some other reason, this was all us, you know, you had nothing to do with it. He's forcing them to say, I mattered to this, right? I was important. Conservative activists are important. You can't just pretend like we don't exist, blah, blah, blah. And that's what he's really doing. And it's very effective. Um, anyway, so, uh, but then Bill Ackman, you know, he, Bill Ackman was, um, you know, he's a hedge fund guy yep. and uh, known for trying to destroy Herbalife the company, um, or was it promote Herbalife? No, it was trying to destroy Herbalife, right? Yeah. I never, I didn't follow that yeah. at all. Yeah. There is some Herbalife is some sort of like multi-level marketing for supplements thing. I don't even know what they do. They're like, uh, they're sort of like uh, uh, Avon for supplements. Yeah, he short he shorted Herbalife. And uh, and and Ackman like um, anyway. I, I just remember that he would create these like gigantic PowerPoint presentations, you know, and then no one kind of no one would pay attention. It wouldn't matter. Um, Ackman is very mad uh, about you know um, he was very mad about the testimony. He was very mad about plagiarism. Um, by the way, I should mention that the people who found the most egregious examples of Claudine Gay's plagiarism were, was not Rufo. It was uh, some people at the Washington Free Beacon. So there's a, you know, there is an infrastructure of conservative, I don't know, muckrakers or whatever you want to call them out there. Uh, in addition, it's not just Rufo. Um, he's not even the best. He's just the best at sort of marketing his master plan. But, but then, but, but yeah. Go for it. Good. Oh, no, I was going to say, Ackman's not even conservative. He's just like one yeah. pissed off rich guy. Yeah. He's just sort of like on a crusade. Does, does everyone plagiarize though? Like once we have AI being able to, you know, filter at, you know, uh, everything like is Claudine, are we going to find, what are we going to find? 
Oh, um, well, a lot, it turns out a lot of people plagiarize. Um, I was surprised at this because, you know, I am the kind of person who can always just write new words and think of new words to write. But a lot of people sort of seize up when they're trying to think of how to phrase things. And I yeah. think that th- this, this fear that they're phrasing things wrong leads them to plagiarize. You know, uh, when I, when people are like, Noah, show me how to write. And I, I, you know, they're, they're deathly afraid of saying something in their own words, you know, even if it's incredibly mundane and people are really, really afraid of, of showing people words that they've written. I think that this fear, you know, most people conquer this fear in the course of an academic career, but I think a lot of people don't, I think they're just afraid that the words they use will be, will be worse, will sound worse. You know, they're, they're not a good writer. Their phrasing will be worse. And so they, they just lift some phrasing from someone else that has already been published or, you know, it's just, um, it's a lack of confidence. I do not think plagiarism is a big deal in terms of the quality of research. In fact, I believe that if we were to allow plagiarism in the form of block quoting, like plagiarism with citations in the form of block quoting, it would work very well because what it would do is it would reduce effort that, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of waste in academia. I think um, we'll get to that later. I think that you know, a lot of times it's just wasted time rewriting something and you just want to block quote it. I do this in blogging all the time. You know, I'm like, okay, here's this thing that explains this in a paragraph. It's pretty well written. I'm just going to grab it and put a blue line next to it saying, here's where this comes from. And then just use that to say it for me. Right. And I just block quote it and then it's fine. And like people could do this. And the thing is that the, the, the dirty little secret of block quoting, I suppose, is that no one actually remembers that it was a block quote. People think it's something you wrote. And I always do this. I always think it's something someone wrote when, in fact, it was a block quote. I don't even notice if it was a block quote. It's just a little blue line next to it. Anyway, the point is that uh, in in econ, you know, in, in, in the math part of econ, there's massive amounts of copying the math and copying the phrasing used to describe the math. So so it, it is standard practice to plagiarize the um, all the language used to describe the models in econ. And no one cares. It is It is explicitly done. And everyone knows it. And it's just like standard language that you use. And it's because it's math, it's accepted, right? No one cares if the language that you use to describe how you set up the mathematical conditions for an equilibrium is plagiarized. In fact, it's good if it is, because then it's standard language and then reading it becomes very easy. Yeah. So so I actually think that, that so plagiarism in terms of its actual impact on academia, the quality of academic research, the impact is low. But... It is important because it's an ethical standard. Yeah. You know, um, in, in some fields like legal scholarship, it is really important. You do not want people just grabbing arguments and stuff. You want people making their own arguments or, or you know, humanities things. And so, so in some fields, it's really important not to plagiarize. And so I think it's, a, it's an important ethical standard, as in if someone plagiarized, uh, that means that they knew they were breaking the rules and they knew the standard was there and they cut corners. And then if they plagiarize and lie about it, that person is a dishonest person. This person's not someone you want in charge of your university. And so, you know, I think that uh, Gay was right to resign and people were right to get mad, even though plagiarism itself is not this like giant scourge on the quality of our research. Yeah. Let, let's talk about this because this conversation is creating just a broader conversation overall about the where is the state of universities? What are the problems? What, what is it doing well? And you reflected over this weekend and your blog about how you know, a few years ago, you were defending universities from right-wing critics. Um, but now, years later, you actually think that universities deserve greater scrutiny. What, why don't you unpack why you were defending universities back then and why now they deserve greater scrutiny? What's changed? Well, absolutely. So so universities, 
do two things. Um, a little bit of little bit of sort of pop history here is that in Britain, universities were more humanities oriented and were sort of a finishing school for the British elite uh, traditionally. Whereas in um, in uh, Germany, universities were more training schools for researchers. Uh, so that you, so the United States is like, okay, should we copy Britain or should, should we copy Germany? Let's just do both. So we we made our undergrad education basically like Brit British elite sort of finishing school, but mainstream for the masses. And we made our graduate education more like Germany's uh, research universities with, you know, with grad students as apprentices, right? Apprentice researchers. And so our university is a mashup of the British and German models. And so it does teaching and research. Now, the, the teaching part's really important. And we always talk about that. We talk about universities as college, as higher education. We use these as synonyms. But it turns out the research function is incredibly important. Universities over time have done a larger and larger percent of our research, right? More and more of the research we do in America is through universities rather than through, say, government labs or corporations. Um, you know, corporations still do a lot. Obviously, you know, AI came out of corporate labs, not out of universities, mostly. Um, I mean, at, at the beginning, it came out of universities, but then the recent advances in AI all came out of Google um, with a bit from Microsoft Research. And so the corporate labs do still do things, but it's it, they're less important than they were before. You know, you used to have most um, groundbreaking research was done inside like, you know, some company like DuPont or Xerox or something like that. Right. And now that's not true anymore. You still have some things, but they're more incremental. And all the, the basic research and a lot of the, the you know, highest impact research is done in universities. In fact, I just saw a paper today um, in the, the NBER estimating that for every one point six million dollars in government grants to universities, ultimately $50 million in startup value gets created because university research becomes so important that you can't look at any tech company and, and fail to find spinoffs from universities, whether they took it directly as a, you know, whether the company's a spinoff from the university, that's, that happens, but it's rarer. More often what'll just happen is these, these ideas just get applied in the private sector. So, you know, people publish the papers and then people use those ideas. You know, Google is this giant company and we think of Google's, you know, we think of PageRank as, you know, Google's PageRank algorithm is what really made them a lot of money. But in fact, what really made them a lot of money was the um, generalized second price auction format for text bar for like sidebar ads. So it was an economics thing by uh, Hal Varian, who I think still works for Google, that really made Google all their money because they realized that there was this extremely easy automated way of bidding for ads that they could do really high volume with so that they could get a million tiny little sidebar text ads. And that was how Google first made their money. Now they've figured out ways to squeeze you for a lot more money by putting all those bullshit links at the top of your search results. And you know, that's another story. But, but anyway, so the point is that academic research really gets into companies and creates all this value for companies. And so it's incredibly important this is on top of whatever social function we think it serves. This is on top of whether we think, you know, humanities research enriches our life or, you know, enriches our culture or, um, you know, social science research creates better policy or, I don't know, cosmology satisfies our curiosity about how the universe began, right? This is all independent of all that. And, you know, just in terms of how universities benefit the private sector, there's an enormous synergy there. There's an enormous pipeline there where universities do stuff and then eventually um, the private sector gets a hold of it and does stuff. So we need universities. We, and a lot of times Republicans get negatively polarized against universities because they're very liberal, you know, because they're very progressive, because they're very lefty, whatever you want to say. And Republicans 
often think this is teachers indoctrinating students with, uh, with lefty ideas. Um, generally, it is not. Generally, what's happening is that um, students are indoctrinating each other with lefty ideas simply by being put all together. You know, they sort of egg each other on and, the, and often they end up um, rebelling against their professors and sort of canceling their professors. And that's a pretty common occurrence in, in lefty academia. But, you know, that's, that's a story for another day. I'm going to write that post about how academia is not indoctrination. It's just uh, mob mentality instead. That's, the leftiness of academia comes from mobs, not from, in, you know, uh, top-down indoctrination. But, you know, conservatives get negatively polarized against universities. And so they think, okay, we've got to take their money away, right? We've got to revoke their tax-exempt status. We've got to tax these various things, tax them more. That, that actually threatens our research apparatus on our private sector. And Republicans don't realize they're doing this because they don't know that so much of the, pro or, or actually they do know. And so in the end, they don't follow through with their threats. But when they make those threats, it's scary. Not just because, you know, oh, I have friends and relatives in academia. No, I'm not. It's not like I'm trying to protect those people. It's, it's because I'm thinking this is really important for our, for our nation. You know, university research is really important for our nation, uh, for the private sector. And so we've got to protect university research. And so, so that was why I defended universities for so long. Um, you know, and I still defend universities. They're still incredibly important. They are, they are a core institution. We, they are a, one of the last remaining, like, really functional American institutions. And, uh, and we, we cannot, you know, give them up or smash them just because we think they're a bunch of lefties, right? It's not going to work. That's bad. Don't do that. And so that's, you know, so, so those defenses are still right. But what I've become more and more aware of in the last few years is that there are some problems at universities. And now I always knew there were problems at universities, but now I, now I think they're the kind of problems at universities that need outside scrutiny to help them. So whenever you have an institution, all institutions develop problems, right? And so the question is, are these problems best solved internally or externally? Six or seven years ago, I thought that all, almost all of the university's problems were best solved internally, such as the replication crisis, for example. Now I'm starting to think more external scrutiny is needed. And so that's not a knock on universities or saying the institution needs to be smashed. It's saying that the outside world needs to look in and sort of say, you know, like, here's some, here are some things that need to change. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. And why is that, like, because it can't solve it internally? And so say, say more about that and then also say more about what it could like what do you expect external scrutiny to do right the reason they i i'm i'm getting more pessimistic about universities ability to solve all these problems internally is that i think the incentives aren't there so whether or not a system can fix itself you know depends on the incentives within the system and so i think that universities in general um are uh you know have some have uh, some broken incentives uh, the academic research uh, apparatus has some broken incentives um, and so my, my, you know, my recent post was, was starting to think about a few of what these are most, again, most people talk about universities in terms of teaching kids, you know, college kids, but I am thinking of universities more in terms of, you know, research here. One of the incentives for research is that publication is determined by insiders. So if I suppose I'm the, you know, someone who studies some incredibly narrow topic, like what's a really narrow topic, like the economics of microphones. All right. And that's, of course, I don't think there are really papers on that, but let's imagine that. Okay. It's an incredibly narrow topic. How many, how much can you really say about microphones? Anyway, 
Um, but suppose there's there's the economics of microphones, and I'm I'm one of the five people who study it. Well, when I publish my papers, I'm going to send those in for peer review, right? I'm going to send those to the Quarterly Journal of Economics or to the American Economic Review or to the Journal of Pub Political Economy or one of these guys, and they're going to say, all right, who do we send this to? Who knows something about the economics of microphones that we can get to evaluate this paper? They're going to send it to one of the other four people who study this, right? And I know those four people. We all go to the same conferences. We have the same seminars. At, we, we, we speak in the same sessions at the American Economic Review or at the um, American Economic Association uh, Conference. We, uh, we, you know, we do all these things together and we all know each other and we know what we hate and what we love about each other and we go to lunch. I know exactly who's going to be reviewing my paper, right? And so what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to cite their papers and that will make them happy because citation counts are the way that you prove that you have an impact right? That's how we measure the success of research is whether other researchers cite it. So I'm going to cite the other four microphone economics people and they're going to cite me and we're all going to cite each other. And because we all know each other, because we have this hyper specialized little tiny micro literature, right? And then um, this, this really games the metric of citation counts through, you know, um, my incentive is just to cite my friends and cite these other people. And it may not even be that I'm explicitly doing this so that they'll publish my things. I may not be that diabolical Machiavellian about it, right? I may just think, oh, here's the four other people who do relevant things. I better cite them. This is what this is where the literature is. And so as academia gets more and more specialized, these small uh, you know, micro fields start to become citation rings very naturally. And citation rings, an, an actual citation ring is when we explicitly collude and you say, Hey, Eric, I'll cite you if you cite me. And then, you know, we actually do that. That's, that's not legal. People do this all the time, but it's not legal. Like you'll get, you'll get fired for this. Um, but de facto citation rings, accidental citation rings, because these, these fields are just so small and specialized and insular are very natural. These happen naturally and there's nothing unethical about it. It's just a bad incentive. And so, um, we need some mechanism of checking that and we don't really have that yet. So that's one you know, sort of example of a bad incentive within academia. And I think, by the way, I think many of the bad incentives come from the peer review system, which is not old. The peer review has only become the standard for academic papers since the 1970s. So it's been around half a century. Before that, peer review is an occasional thing. And lots of research got done um, without peer review. Peer review is new. I think there's lots and lots and lots of problems with it. And I think that this citation ring problem is just one of the problems with peer review. You get uh, gatekeepers. So um, there's a there's a famous paper from 2019 that shows that when famous scientists, famous biologists die, progress in their field of biology speeds up. Is that what you'd expect? You know, like a famous, you know, suppose like James Watson kicks the bucket or I don't know who's a famous biologist. Um Catalan Carco, the, the vaccine woman, suppose she kicks the bucket, you know, you would, they, these people are so brilliant. You wouldn't expect progress to speed up after they die, but it does. And the reason you can trace who, where the progress comes from, the progress comes from all entirely from people who don't collaborate with the famous person who now get their papers published more. It comes from outsiders. And so basically the, the famous person acts as sort of a, a, a blocking factor. They, they block stuff that they don't like. They determine one direction for the field. And eventually that direction, that research direction goes stale. That's an easy way of measuring the gatekeeping effect. So those are two examples of bad incentives. And uh, a lot of the people who do uh, quote unquote meta science have been thinking about these bad incentives for a while. 
Um, there's some, uh, some bloggers who've really thought a lot about or written a lot about this, like um, Jose Luis Racon and Alexi Guzet is the other guy. Do you know these guys? Do you know Jose? Yeah, yeah, they're great guys. Alexi? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't tell Alexi. I almost forgot his name. Um, yeah, no, he's, he's great. He's great. He's great. Sorry, Alexi. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, we could have those two guys on to talk about this more if you want. But this is this is the idea of meta science. Uh, how do we improve science? And so I think that there's the possibility that a lot of research out there is is you know crap. Uh, a, a, an economist, Douglas Campbell, said that he thinks that maybe ten to twenty percent of econ research is actually valuable. And off the top of my head, that's my guess as well. I think that ten to twenty percent of econ research is valuable. The rest is com is just Either, either it's done badly, which a lot of things are, or, uh, you know, um, it's, uh, it's just irrelevant. It's just like, who cares? You know, um, in, in economics, in terms of what gets published, people prize statistical significance. Can you find a real effect over the size of the effect? You know, people are publishing these like, you know, oh, wow, I found that, you know, making people wear silly hats improves educational performance. Well, fine. It improves educational performance by 0.001%. Great. Let's have everyone wear silly hats. <laughs> by the way, I endorse this. I endorse this. <laughs> hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. But so that's, you know, the, there's the question of relevance. Like, how much does it even matter? And a lot of, a lot of stuff is just like pointless. And a, a lot of stuff is just like macro stuff that we'll be unable to verify or, um, you know, crappy data sets or who God, who knows, right? Lots of stuff, even in the top journals. Like I would say that, you know, 80% of the American Economic Review is crap. <laughs> like just crap. You read it, you're like, how did this get published in the American Economic Review? Uh, so, so by the way, do you want me to, anyway, yes. go ahead. I'm, I'm, all right, let's keep going. I, I, I want to get a sense for what is even the good stuff? How, how do you know what's good or what is the impact that the good stuff is, is even having? Well, so I, I mean, the um, people know. And what's, uh, what's interesting is that in, in bio, you can get uh, experts to predict very accurately which papers will replicate and which papers will not. You immediately know like, oh, this paper is crap. This paper is good. And, and it's, it's pretty high accuracy in terms of just glancing at a paper, experts glancing at a paper and knowing which will replicate and which will not. That's a bad sign because it means that if experts know which papers will replicate and they're still, you know, experts, th these are the same experts who publish those papers, who approve those for peer review, who approve those at journals, right? Who invite those authors of those papers to speak at conferences. So they know that they're promoting crap. There's a bad incentive there. But then uh, how do you know what's, what's actually, you know, what is the standard for good? Well, it's different in different fields. In economics, it would be, you know, the results hold up to alternative statistical methods. In bio, it would be, would it replicate? You know, are there errors in the code? In terms of significance, you would think, what are the effect sizes, right? Is this economically meaningful? Is this, you know, is this something where if we changed policy based on this paper, would it actually have an effect? Does it agree with other things in the literature? So you have one paper that finds an anomalously large effect for like minimum wages. And you're like, oh, well, maybe they're wrong. Yeah, basically, like robustness and um, replicability. There's a whole bunch of ways, you know, effect size. There's a whole bunch of ways that I could, you know, very standard ways that I could that I could give you to tell whether something's good, and it would depend on the discipline. Um, even within economics, like it really depends on the type of economics. Like, is a theory paper good? 
Well, what you do is you look at you look to see whether that theory paper then informs a bunch of empirical papers. You can test the theory or whether the theory is useful for policy. Like, you know, um, there was my favorite example that I always bag on is the, the um, Nobel Prize for uh, real business cycle theory, which is this theory, incredibly implausible theory that didn't fit the data at all about recessions and booms uh, that basically say a recession happens when engineers discover fewer things this year or even forget some of what they knew somehow. And then um, this causes people to be pessimistic about the future of technology. And then a whole bunch of workers decide that, you know, they're going to take a vacation because of that. And that's unemployment. Well, that's bullshit. But, <laughs> but it won a Nobel Prize in 2004. So you can get a Nobel Prize for bullshit. The reason it won a Nobel Prize is because, you know, it created math that a lot of other people could use to make other kinds of models that are slightly less bullshit. That's that's why it won. But nobody really thinks this is a good description. Actually, what's interesting is that there is one situation for which this is a good description of the economy, and it's for um, oil exporters, like like the Gulf states, like how they respond to an oil shock. Actually, this doesn't work. <laughs> that's interesting. But pretty much, it's 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 dumb, and it, it's never a good description of employment. So yet yet it won a Nobel Prize, and so is that good? So so when I said ten to twenty percent are good. Economists are going to hold their nose and say that that was good paper, that that was good research because it was important. It was influential. You know, other people um, decided this was this was a useful way to do math for models and did more of it. Um, I believe it is not a useful way to do math for models. And I think there's some really good math papers showing why it breaks down a lot of times, specifically a lot of times the how these models work depends on on imagining that people think infinitely far in the future and make very large changes today, depending on tiny changes of what they think will be happening in like 2200 AD. And it won't. No one thinks that way. And so like, anyway, there's there's other better models that I like better. Uh, but I, I think, um, I forgot why we were talking about this. I just like to bag on this a lot. Uh, oh, we were talking what, about what's the good stuff. We were talking about what percentage of academia is waste. And you were giving a, a deep dive. Into right, 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 right. Who, who, yeah, I, we don't know. Um, it's not even, there's not even a hard and fast definition. What percent of humanity's research is waste, right? If you're, if you're like a, like a STEM head who thinks like this is all a bunch of bullshit, you're like, well, hundred percent is waste. Who cares? Let's not study this. But then if you think that this enriches our culture and that just talking about this is good, maybe you're like 80% is great. 90% is great. I don't know. It's a value judgment at the end of the day. And for social science, it's even harder. It, you know, you have to look at how things affect policy and whether those policies were important. You know, so like, for example, minimum wage research, there's a lot of research on minimum wage. You could look at that research and you could make a complete bullshit guesstimate about how much that research affected the fight for 15. And then you could use that research to say, okay, well, supposing that the fight, that, that fight for 15 was based somewhat on this research, how much did five for fight for 15 actually help the average worker? So you can look at the impact and it's typically pretty small, but then again, you know, you're like a, you know, you're just sitting there writing some paper, what kind of impact do you expect to have? And so, so you can look at the, you can think about the policy impact of social science for natural sciences. It would be easier if we had really good data on it because you could track you could track papers to patents to products. And so that's how you do that. You could say, okay, well, we, we see that this, um, this scientific insight about you know, semiconductors led to this patent about semiconductors. And then these products cited this pat you know, patent was used in these various products or at least you know, by these companies. And so you could, you could trace it from you know, A to B to C and say this product generated this much value. Here's how much sales there were, blah, blah, blah. So you could, you could get some estimate of the value. 
right? Like I said, there's that paper that says that every $1.6 million in government grants to university research ends up creating or, or, or being associated with anyway, let's say $50 million in startup value ultimately. Now that estimate is subject to a lot of uncertainty, but notice that if you divide um, the, the, the ultimate effect by 20, even if you assume that the real effect is only 1 20th of, of what it claims, then that still means we should be giving a lot more government grants because you know the, they're, they're really paying off here, right? And so, so you can do things like that, that track value in aggregate. Tracking the value of a specific research paper is actually pretty hard and takes a very long time. Because remember, this, this takes a long time, right? It's going to be a very long time uh, before we know uh, whether something's useful. So like, for example, matrix algebra, right? People invent, invented matrix algebra in like the 1900s. And they're just like, oh, cool. I could do this thing with a little square of numbers. Except they probably said it in like German. Um, anyway, so they, they did this and then no one ever used it. No one ever did it. Actually, they probably did it in French because French, French people did the math, German people did the physics. That was sort of the division of labor in old Europe. Um, but then they said so they probably did it in French. I don't actually remember who invented matrices. But then it, it tootled along as this little curiosity. No one really did much linear algebra. Um, no one ever did much matrix algebra for you know years and years. And then along comes quantum mechanics. And then Werner Heisenberg is like, well, how am I going to represent you know these sort of probabilistic states? I'll represent them with a matrix. So he uses matrix algebra to do quantum mechanics. You know, nowadays we use matrix, matrices for everything. We use them for linear approximations. We use them for, you know, approximating value functions. Every engineer uses matrices all day. Every statistician uses matrices all day. And in fact, AI is just giant matrices, right? It's giant matrix multiplication. So um, now matrices are used for everything, but it was it was just because some some dorky physics guy came along and read some dorky math guy's paper. It was like, oh, I could use this for this other thing. And then boom, it really took off, right? That in, ignited like a centuries long boom in matrices. And so you don't always know the value that these are going to produce. Ultimately, matrices, you know, whatever value that, that gets produced with AI is going to be traceable to the matrix, which for years people thought was unimportant and useless. So you see how hard this is. Yeah, it's definitely not, uh, not, not linear. And so one of the incentive problems you've mentioned is the sort of citation ring. The other incentive problem you've mentioned in your piece is that we have fields that don't want to die. And so if people are, you know, uh, if there are less discoveries to have in a certain field, people will make up discoveries in effect, or, or stretch uh, or because they want to keep working in that field as opposed to switching to other fields. Is that, is that right? Right, right, right. And so in the 1950s and 60s, we set up our university system. We did this mass implementation of the scientific stuff that had worked well in a boutique specialized way before World War II and then during World War II. We said, okay, we're going to do this everywhere and for everything. We're going to scale this up. And so we decided what field should a university have? Well, you should have physics, obviously. You should have biology. You should have psychology. You should have sociology. Maybe, you know, using research techniques will allow us to discover how people think how societies act, you know, how economies work. We made those fields. What if that wasn't a permanent state of affairs, right? What if it turns out that actually there's a limited amount that you can understand with these methods about society as such, you know, separate from what we can understand about social psychology or economics? What if it turns out that sociology should be a much, 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 much smaller field than it is? And we just, the reason it's so big today is that the people of the 1950s and 1960s thought that it ought to be big. 
you know, of course, I'm I'm just joking here. I'm picking on sociologists, so so sorry, sociologist friends. Um, I'm just picking on you. But like, what if that were true, right? How would we shift? How would we say, okay, well, now we're going to rethink the 50s and 60s. We're going to re revisit that verdict about which fields are important to have and which are not. So, of course, this is much. You know, I, I doubt the entire field of sociology will prove to be uh, useless. Uh, that that's probably not going to happen, although maybe it should shrink by 50%. I don't know. Um, I can give you some real world examples. So for example, uh, high energy particle physics, right? In the, in, in the post-war period from, from, or, or even, even the pre-war period, what, what, what worked in particle physics was you, you used math to theorize that there would be a particle here. Uh, there, there would be a new particle we haven't discovered. And then you smash a bunch of stuff together and you observe what comes out and you find the new particle. That worked for decades because you have to um, smash particles together ever harder to find the new particles you haven't found. We kept building bigger and more powerful colliders uh, so that we could smash particles harder so that we could find the more exotic rare particles like B mesons or Higgs bosons, right? And so um, we kept doing that. And this kept working and it kept publishing a lot of papers. And then you would make a complicated mathematical theory uh, based on the particles that you would see right? Like electroweak theory, you'd say like, okay, this incorporates this and this and this. This is brilliant, right? I mean, brilliant work, won a bunch of Nobel Prizes and furthered our understanding of the universe. And at some point we ran out of new particles. Um, at some point we stopped seeing new particles and the Higgs boson is sort of the last thing that we saw. And now a lot of particle physicists are sort of making theories about all these new particles we could see. If we could just make a slightly bigger collider, these ideas, these theories are no longer based on anomalous results. So the way you do this before is you'd say, okay, well, I have my collider. I saw the things I expected to see, but I also saw this other weird stuff that I can't explain. So let's make a new math theory to posit some new particles and then make a new collider to test for the new particles. And this, this was an iterative process. As you built bigger and bigger colliders, you'd see more and more particles, you'd, you know, but then you'd also see unexplained things in addition in the process. And then you'd make a new theory to explain those things. And then you'd build a new bigger collider to test for those things. And so that stopped with the LHC, with the Large Hadron Collider in uh, in Europe, right? That saw the Higgs boson, but it didn't see other particles. It didn't see anomalies. So there's all these particle physicists who are making new theories to predict other particles, but they're no longer based on anomalies. They're no longer based on sort of unexplained phenomena. They're based on symmetry, you know, of some sort, uh, like supersymmetry, or they're based on some sort of beauty of the math like wouldn't it be nice if there were this new particle maybe we should build you know spend tens of millions of dollars to make another collider to look for this other particle that there should be here just because it makes the math work out nice in this equation i just made up um so that's what they're doing and so honestly it feels like people just sort of doing what they know how to do you know it feels like people just going in the direction they know how to go but which has has you know the the returns have diminished you could even be, you know, a troll and say, well, was it even worth discovering the Higgs boson? You know, the, the Higgs, I think probably yes, but there's nothing we can really do with a Higgs boson. <laughs> like it's too, it's too much energy. Like we can't really, you can't really use it for technology, right? Just about any of these particles we've discovered, no one knows how to use them for technology. I think in, in college, we did try to figure out how you could use B mesons to make a real life lightsaber, but no one's doing it you know, until the Jedi come along there, you know, researchers want to research the thing they were hired to research and they were hired for life, right? With tenure, at least by the time they get tenure, they are, it's lifetime employment. 
And so these very smart people want to keep working on the same stuff. Now, that's not everyone. You see some people with restless minds who want to keep on looking for the new thing. They want to jump to the new thing. I like those researches. Those are my favorite researches. Those people are so cool because they're like, you know, if bloggers actually contributed something real to the research world instead of just, you know, I have this restless urge to like look at new things, but I'm not discovering new things. I'm summarizing new things. But then, um, but these people actually discover new things in each, like, uh, like Eric Budish is this guy. Do you know um, his papers on the econ of crypto? I thought VCs would really like this. He did um, these calculations about the economics of crypto, like how valuable would would um, Bitcoin have to be basically before it destroys itself because attacking it is just so tempting about the economics of of attacking Bitcoin and thus about the economics of how, uh, you know, how much energy you have to spend to like defend Bitcoin. And, and so so he did some really great papers with game theory, right, about the 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 rational attackers and stuff. And it was pretty cool. That research is why I became more more sort of bearish on Bitcoin, because I uh, it, it led me to understand that the mining cost of Bitcoin is actually a storage cost that like um, what you're really people call it mining, but what you're really doing is guarding the gold. Like the, the mining cost is actually the cost of hiring the guards for Fort Knox with the AK 47s or whatever they've got or whatever they have to defend Fort Knox. Right. I don't think we have the gold in Fort Knox anymore. I think it's just a museum now, but, um, <laughs> but you know, back in the sixties we did anyway, he's an example of one of those restless minds. Most people are not like that. Most people want to study the thing they came to study. I came here to make models that posit new particles that are then verified by colliders. And that is my job. And so at some point, we've got to say, okay, at some point, this is, this is wasteful. Now, now those old guys who've been doing this like sort of predict new particles game for their entire career, maybe they're too old to repurpose. Maybe, you know, they're, they're not the the super flexible types and if you tried to say okay now okay little scientist now you're gonna go work on nuclear fusion now because that's what we think is economically important they'd be i don't understand nuclear fusion i've got to go read a textbook ah and then they just explode and die maybe those are those kind of people right um who just who just are not going to be suited to the new thing and that's fine whatever but the problem is the gatekeeper effect with students, right? Because these old guys are teaching all their students to do the same thing that they did. They're, you know, they're teaching all the, the young people with flexible, restless minds. They're teaching them to do this old thing that isn't yielding results anymore. They're teaching, they're saying, hey, young, super genius, I'm going to teach you how to make models that, you know, posit new particles for new colliders. And then that's a big waste because those young, because young people have flexible minds and young people could go into new fields and you could take those same minds and repurpose them toward, toward nuclear fusion or something. Those, you know, young, extremely smart people are some of the most valuable resource. As a VC, what is the most valuable resource? It's like genius founders, right? Like that's, that's where all the value comes from is these genius founders. And that's the same in science. It's not different. The, the personality type's a little bit different, but the, um, but the, the principle is not different. That's where all this value is coming from. And if those young, brilliant, restless minds are being, are being steered by, by rigid old people toward fields that are mined out, you know, that were extremely valuable once upon a time, but are now only slightly valuable or even not valuable at all, then that is a giant waste of national resources, right? It's like, it's like, um, having every, you know, imagine if you had every new entrepreneur who came in build like, you know, a better version of Figma, 
right? Would that be a good use of every No, it wouldn't, right? And if you look at, there are countries where that's actually happening, like where, um, <coughs> <trying to, coughs> but where there's, uh, you know, where, where young people are being steered by the old people. And by the way, this is one, this is one bad thing about population aging, right? Just to sort of bring a random thing out of left field and connect it, right? Because my job is to connect all the strains, connect all the threads, like on the detective board, it's all related. Population aging means there's a bunch of those old, smart, rigid thinking, old, smart guys, and not as many of the young, brilliant, genius people. Um, and so then there's a whole lot of old people to, to capture the young people and, and point them in a pointless direction. Uh, and if you look at Japanese companies, this is exactly what you saw. You saw a whole bunch of smart young people would go to work for Panasonic or Sony, right? And then the old, like all these old guys, and they were all guys, by the way, these old guys, um, you know, who came up in the eighties would still want people working on a slightly better version of whatever, like, you know, like camera module they invented in like 1985. They were like, oh, this made a lot of money back in 1985. Here, genius, you design a slightly better version. And then these young people who were, you know, they had lifetime employment. They didn't have a good secondary job market where they could hop jobs. They didn't have a good startup ecosystem. They were stuck doing what the old guys wanted them to do. And it was a giant, colossal waste of national resources, right? Whereas in the post-war period, in the 19, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, when Japan was recovering from World War II, and didn't have, you know, and, and the electronics industry was new. So there was, there was war recovery and the development of this new industry. Japanese entrepreneurs were wildly creative, right? They created uh, things like Sony, you know, they created not just things like the Walkman, but also a ton of like products you never even heard of, like nanolithography stuff that like only the, you know, chip people know. But they created all this brilliant, brilliant stuff back in the day when there were no old people in charge because they were starting their own companies because there weren't electronics companies yet. Or because they were, you know, because like old people had been killed in the war or there wasn't much capital around or there, were the, the, there was a baby boom, right? The population was young in general. So you had all these young people. America had our baby boomers and we had Steve Jobs making new stuff. Like who was Steve Jobs' elderly boss to like tell him to like make something boring, right? It didn't exist. And so, but then... When Japan got really old, especially because it has this lifetime employment with seniority promotion, stupid legacy corporate system, the old guys really captured the young people and really, really uh, underused their talents in Japan. And our science system is similar to that. And that's actually what I didn't write in my post, which I should have probably written, uh, but it was getting pretty long. Um, I'll write it later. That is That is what made me think about the problem with of science in this regard is having seen in Japan, having seen how much this ossified Japanese companies. And I said, wait, the, the tenure system and the advisor system and the peer review system and all these gatekeeping systems ultimately add up to the same thing in American universities that they do in Japanese companies. American universities look like Japanese companies. And this made me worry. Right. And I didn't even write that, but I should have written that. And, and worried because it's just, it's not a good path. It's not a good path. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's top heavy and gatekeepy and ossified. Yeah. And, um, and we need to, you know, we need to shake it up. Um, this is a problem that goes far beyond, you know, some plagiarism thing, you know, and it goes, it, um, it goes far beyond the replication crisis too, by the way. If innovation is like mining for veins of ore and each vein, old vein gets mined out, we need to switch to the new veins of ore, right? 
if you look at artificial intelligence papers, it's like, woo, right? It just exploded, right? But if you look at advances in, I don't know what some like really old field that, that people still, well, okay, high energy particle physics is like a, an example I know. So, you know, you look at those, it keeps trundling along, but then, but then you find these new things and it really zooms, right? Like AI. And so that's that's how we really make progress is by opening up these new veins. But the 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 sort of corollary to that is that the old veins are less productive; they get exhausted. And um, there's this paper by by Bloom et al. Um, called "Our Ideas Getting Harder to Find," and that paper is from uh, 2020, and it basically looks at specific fields like Moore's law. Right. So everyone knows Moore's law. We all love Moore's law. Right. Moore's law is slowing down. It used to be that that uh, density of transistors doubled every like what? One point five years, I think, for a long time. It's up to about three years, I think it takes to double. So it's Moore's law has slowed down quite a bit. It's still pretty good, but it's slowing down. But the amount of money needed to produce each Moore's law increment, you know, each better transistor has just increased exponentially. And I forget that that's a, that's its own law. And I forget the name of that law. The point is that Intel and, you know, and um, TSMC and ASML and Samsung and, you know, these other companies have just been, and all the suppliers to all those people and all the other designers and software people and all this stuff, the amount of money that gets spent on research to make the next better generation of chips just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And as AI just demands infinite chip, you know, compute, this, this amount of money spent on this is just going to go up and up and up. And in a few more generations of chips at the current rate, it will like eat much of our economy. And so it's not going to happen. It's going to slow down. So um, that's one of the fields that Bloom et al. look at in their paper. And they say, look, it's slowing. Research productivity is falling because it's taking much, much, much more money to get the same percentage rate of increase in Moore's law in computation speeds or in um, transistor density and all the this, you know various measures of computing performance. And already there's other issues like heat that pose a big problem and that, you know, slow things down so that, you know, um, your laptop isn't that much more powerful than it used to be because sure, chips are better, but they'll overheat your laptop now, right? And so that's why there's been so much of a shift, like low power chips and phones and blah, blah, blah. So, so we, we get the fastest progress by opening up new fields. And that's what AI was. We, we found a new thing to think about, to research, to learn about. And that novelty is what we need from our university system. And there are people thinking about things like moonshots or, uh, you know, wild out there, mad science research and how to, how to change NSF grants, NIH grants to incentivize um, very, very original research more to increase the chances that we open up those new fields. And so that's, that's an important, you know, kind of era of meta science that a lot of people are thinking about. Gearing towards closing here, that, that was well articulated, you identify some of the incentive problems. If you could wave a wand and change anything that seems feasible to change, what do, what do you hope happens or what, what would you do? What do you hope that this scrutiny then leads to? Right. The, the big problem is peer review. That's, that's the big problem with our system. Now we could just do away with peer review. And so Liam Bright, the philosopher, has some good arguments in terms of just doing away with peer review. Economists in practice have started to cite NBER working papers as if they have been peer reviewed. So, so NBER working papers regularly get cited. Everyone sort of, they're as respected pretty much as papers that have been accepted for journal publication. And often they get published in a journal two to three years later. Um, so, so working papers, uh, you know, in lieu of peer review are very important. Opening up, you know, 
new new types of peer review um, would be would be very useful. You can pay reviewers. Maybe you could pay people from outside of the. So, so for example, suppose you do the economics of microphones, and we're going to look at someone who looks at the economics of uh, fisheries to review the economics of microphones paper. That's going to take them longer, and it's going to be harder because they're going to have to learn all how that literature works in order to do this. So we'd have to pay them to do it. Less emphasis on on volume of papers published. I think that one of our big problems is the publisher parish culture in America, where you have to just pump out a volume of papers. Whereas if you look at how how professors worked back in the old days of Europe, like you wouldn't publish that many papers, right? You publish maybe only a couple of papers. In in math, things still work that way. You don't actually publish that many papers in math, unless you're Terence Tao. Um, I think there was some statistic that a good uh, a, a professor at a top mathematics uh, school will typically publish about two papers in good journals per year. And at one point, Terence Tao was up to 58 per year. But uh, so there's exceptions. But but I guess the point is that fewer papers of higher quality might be good to do. Um, hiring based less on volume of papers, uh, because a lot of people are just um, that's the other incentive I didn't even talk about is that a lot of people are just pumping out crap so that they can get teaching jobs. Sure. Yeah. Right. Because you're you know, you're really going to be you go to work at some liberal arts college or whatever. Or, you know, a lot of places, you're really going to be first and foremost a teacher, but you're doing research to prove that you understand this field well enough to teach it. And this is creating this, you know, just, and, and journals publish it because they know they're like, okay, well, we need all the teachers to educate the youth of America. So we're going to have to publish all these crappy papers. Otherwise we won't have enough teachers. So they have quotas on the number of papers they have to publish. And in, in economics, it's been one journal, the American Economic Review, that's taken it upon itself to publish more and more and more papers just so that the field of economics can get enough publications. That's crap. That sucks. Like, no, don't publish papers that aren't worth <laughs> like, um, so fewer, you know, papers, high, high impact stuff, experiments with how to reform peer review so that it's not gatekept. I think that's where the, the big opportunities probably lie. And so what, what is the mechanism by which your ideal transformation could happen? You say it has to happen from, you know, outside the system, but how does it actually happen? Well, okay. I, so I don't know. Um, but I think that, you know, so here's Ackman as a, as an alum yelling at universities to do this and that. Why don't alums, you know, call in people from like, you know, uh, uh, the meta science field or from granting agencies and whatever and, and yell at universities to change peer review or, or yell at journals. Uh, you know, I guess journals are controlled by universities, which are controlled by alums. Um, so alums are one potential thing. Um, but then, uh, you know, administrators can do this to, to research stuff. And so basically more pressure on, uh, universities to improve their, their research productivity from outside, from, from alums, from, uh, granting agencies, from companies that, you know, companies work with universities and provide a lot of funding, uh, through joint research stuff and companies can put pressure on universities to improve research productivity. And so they're basically, yeah, government agencies, companies, alums, and, and, um, and et cetera, though, that's where the pressure can come from. You know, ultimately society is just one big internal thing because we're all part of the same society. And so, so pressure has to come from somewhere within the ultimate overall social system. If the ultimate overall social system doesn't police itself, then nothing can, because there's no aliens to come and make sure we do things right. Yeah. Okay, but but I think that there's there's um, 
Uh, also bloggers. Bloggers are a key, uh, I should say, um, key agent of change anywhere. Yes. Podcasters too, perhaps. Uh, the, uh, on, on that note, shall we, uh, shall we wrap this uh, deep dive into, into research? And uh, until next time. Until next time. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at terpentine.co, and let's partner together.